giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And today we're going to talk about communication and collaboration. If you missed it, over the last month, we discussed product roadmaps with our four founders in the new series format, which was super exciting. And this month, we thought it would be timely to tackle communication and collaboration. Timely? Why timely? Lindsay, what's going on? Um, not much. Not much has changed to all of our work experiences, workflows. <laughs> I think a few people might be working from home now. Just a, just a few. Yeah. Yeah. A few yeah. of us. So kind of testing the limits of any communication and collaboration processes. Yeah, definitely. So at ThoughtBot, we have transitioned to completely remotely since um, probably the second half of March. As we record, it's midway through April now, and Mm -hmm. we're definitely going to be in this mode for at least the rest of the month. But I suspect it's going to be significantly longer than that at this point. Definitely, let's start there um, because that's on the top of my mind and everyone's mind. But so, how have things changed in the last several weeks? Well, <laughs> what, could you be more specific? Okay, so okay, actually, let's. How have things not changed? So, what I think overall, the transition to remote for the majority of people at ThoughtBot, particularly people sort of not on day to day client work. We were already interacting remotely with so many of our team members because we're split across the six cities that we have and we're working across different. So for the most part, I feel like a lot of the internal communication has moved pretty seamlessly or didn't change at all. For me personally, the thing that I noticed and have been making changes in order to to fix is I really went from spending a good amount of my day on calls to basically spending all of my day every day with only quick breaks in between on video meetings. Mm -hmm. And I think in the absence of my, my theory is that in the absence of those common connections that we had, everything defaulted to let's have a call. And so suddenly the number of calls I was doing expanded to fill the entire day. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about that. I think that's a a common pain that people are feeling is the increase in video calls and then also the almost like the physical ramifications of that. Like Mm -hmm. I, I hear a lot of people experiencing more headaches and eye strain and like migraines. I've heard of people just like having like the general sensation of burnout from the amount of meetings that are happening. And I think for me, like that was a surprise that introducing more video calls or balancing video calls when maybe you were having more in-person conversations was actually going to take a physical toll. Yeah. And, and things like everyone being across different time zones, it became really easy to be missing lunch or something like that in order to make that call happen for everybody, which isn't great. It's not good. Yeah. I've definitely seen the positives as well. Mm -hmm. And I think being in this situation has increased my empathy for people who work remotely or even who are at like distributed offices. The example I keep referring to is 
in our sales and marketing strategy sessions that we had, you know, as kind of all these things were changing and we wanted to come together to, to brainstorm ideas. I loved the the format of those meetings almost more than our in-person meetings or our like partially in-person, partially remote, because it felt like everyone in the call was on like an even playing field mm-hmm. instead of having, you know, we have got nine people in Boston and then, you know, one or two from a bunch of other studios. I could definitely see how it's more difficult to like contribute to conversation or even organize the work we're doing in order to to move it forward. Um, so that was actually pretty cool and probably something I'll take forward even when we do return to office life. I think that that's right. Like what we were doing previously is we might have that meeting where a group of people come together and really think strategically and run some exercises or break out into groups. And we would historically wait until we all got together in person to do that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and putting some thought into it and establishing and, and experimenting with ways of doing it remotely because we had to means we can do that better in the future. And we don't need to wait to get everyone together. We can find a way to do it remotely. And you mentioned like that, you know, not a ton has changed for us, you know, because we were used to a lot of distributed work or, you know, working asynchronously between, you know, time zones or projects. I think that's also an interesting thing to sort of dig into because I think ThoughtBot does this a lot better than other companies as far as having really healthy communication, really strong collaboration processes and tools And then also being really iterative about those things, too, and realizing that they're always changing. They should always be improved. And I'm curious where that actually stems from. You know, is this something that you were like, as soon as you started the company, were like, this is one of our core values that, you know, we're going to do this really well? Like, where did this actually stem from? It definitely doesn't stem from an intentional, like, oh, we're starting ThoughtBot and we're going to do this in a certain way. I think what it comes from and a lot of our techniques that we use just take things from product design and development and apply it to the rest of the stack of communication. I think that's always been our perspective is we're designers and developers. We know how to do this well. And let's not take it for granted that we can't apply what we know, the tools and the techniques to everything else we do as well. Mm -hmm. And so that influences like using GitHub issues to track things that could be better with the company in a backlog comes from, you know, how would we solve this problem as designers and developers? Let's let's do that. And I would also be remiss if I didn't say like so much of how we work is actually influenced in the early days by 37 Signals, now Basecamp, because we were using Basecamp, they created Rails, we adopted Rails really quickly, and we've always looked to them for the way that our teams work with integrated design and development and for the way that communication works. Got it. So you had kind of someone in the community that you were looking to as doing this really well and having, you know, great best practices that you could deploy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And why do you think 
product design and development does this better than regular business practices. Because from my point of view, that's totally true. Like using this kind of like product management framework for all the areas of the business works really well. So I don't really know this, but I have theories. (laughs) Yeah, let's hear it. So one big theory, and you know, in my onboarding talk where I tell people this is going to be different and the ways in which we're going to work are a little bit different than you might be used to, one of the things that I talk about is making everything less, not emotional, but more objective. So like, you know, at a company when there's a, a something that could be improved, it's easy to say like, I don't know the solution to that or, oh, that's really um, controversial. So I'm not going to mention anything. Or if I don't know how to fix it, it's not my place to fix it. I, or I don't have the solution. I don't know what I'm going to do. Nothing happens with that. But on our products, we don't have that problem. There's never like a bug that you look at and be like, oh, you know, Joe will be upset if I file this bug. Like, well, if you do, you have a very dysfunctional team. <laughs> I also like thinking so, of like uh, you know, Joe Ferris. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use specific names. <laughs> And so removing yourself from that and looking at the overall organization or the overall system or the thing that you're working on, not as this thing that we're all in, but this thing that we're all working on together, lets you remove yourself and say, no, I don't need the solution to this problem. I don't worry about what the fix for a bug is going to be. I put it in the backlog and we prioritize it. And eventually someone takes it off the top and works on it. And it's their responsibility to understand the problem and identify what the fix is going to be and then roll it out. And we can approach a lot of what we do in companies and and that kind of thing in that way where we just log it, we come up with the action item for it in in a structured, prioritized way, and then address it. And same thing on the other side of things, it's like, reflecting on the way that you work, doing retrospectives, coming up with that. We pull that from our agile product design and development practices, and we can apply them to the rest of what we do as well. And I think Mm -hmm. that flipping your thinking from not needing to think about solutions up front and flipping your thinking from this is something I'm in to this is something I'm working on are the key components. Before ThoughtBot, I was definitely gravitating to a lot of product frameworks for marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it was as a result of being on product startup teams where usually the founders, at least one or two are, you know, product people. And then most of the team is engineers and product folks. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's a really nice fit in terms of like, having your like business team working in a similar format and cadence as like the rest of the company and helping kind of like bring it all together. So doing things like marketing sprints, almost like breaking out, you know, work into story kind of things and then doing retros as well. Mm-hmm. But definitely coming to, to ThoughtBot has brought that to a whole other level But yeah, I didn't even know. I was, you know, I was in training. And now (laughs) I'm really perfecting my craft. Because yeah, that I would say it's not typical to be doing those kinds of things. 
So yeah, that that probably you know what what drew me into the thought bot and mm-hmm. <laughs> energy sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you know not everything is so perfect. You know, everything can be improved. And I think when you look at the ways that we work, the thing we aren't as good at, and we're we're actively working on it now, is the more strategic thinking. When everything is a backlog and everything is, oh, we're having a retrospective at the end of the week. It's a very mm-hmm. good system for identifying incremental improvements to the current pain. It's not necessarily a great system for taking a step back and really looking at things holistically and coming up with like an overall strategy. And I think that ties into the last month's conversation about product roadmaps. <laughs> it's beneficial to every once in a while to do that or to have an overall vision of where you're headed. Um, And when you don't know, you can use the same tools and techniques, whether that be getting everybody in a room together or doing it remotely, a design sprint and some design thinking and some exercises to figure out what the next year or six months or quarter looks like. I think Mm -hmm. that that's useful beneficial and it's an area where we haven't historically been as great with that as as we could be. I think one good thing though, you know, those conversations can emerge and that feedback can emerge quickly because there is communication is so valued. Mm-hmm. Um and the ability to give like honest feedback and, you know, constructive feedback and say, you know, hey, I think this is no longer working for us or, you know, this is a problem I'm seeing and let's think about like how we're going to address this other item instead of things getting brushed under the the rug or, or people, you know, being worried that if they bring something up that then they have to figure out the solution alone, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a thing that can happen in certain companies. Yeah. Or that you're going to be seen as just complaining, right? Mm -hmm. I think that holds people back. They don't want to be the one who is pointing out the problems or complaining all the time without solutions. Another thing I've learned at ThoughtBot is I think through specifically the pull request process, Mm -hmm. folks are so good at (laughs) writing like productive pull requests and like commenting on issues in ways that, again, like aren't making the individual feel like personally attacked or like they're doing something wrong, but can help the conversation or, you know, whatever the issue or project is, move in a more productive direction in a way that I really haven't seen done in other places. You know, you could call it politics for lack of a better word like mm-hmm. oh you need to be nice to this person or because this person has this title or because so much work has gone into this thing like you you better not point out anything uh, but then and then that sort of those best practices around that communication on pull requests feeds into all all different kinds of, of the tools that we use or even the conversations that we have and I think like it's improved uh, how I'm able to give feedback and collaborate with people on things. Yeah, and a lot of that happens in a written 
way. And written communication is sort of notoriously fraught for having a lot of the nuance and that kind of thing. So being a good writer, being clear is is important. But also there's a lot of tools and techniques and we can link to them in in the show notes too, uh, just in terms of like little things, like just framing a lot of what your points are as questions gives people the benefit of the doubt in the conversation that like they've considered that or you're giving them the opportunity to consider it rather than just making a statement about why it's wrong or what could be done differently. And little things like that are techniques that, I think we do have we have picked up and we do work on as a team that helps the conversations stay really constructive, even around difficult subjects. Yeah, that's a a big one. Phrasing things as questions with that underlying assumption that they already considered it. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But it can also take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you can use ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, one of the greatest shows of all time, on Australian Netflix. It's so simple, just fire up the ExpressVPN app, Change your location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away! But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit expressvpn.com robots, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash robots. Thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. I think that approaching your work with optimism is important. So when you know or you're optimistic that things will be improved, then it frees you up to have a constructive conversation or or to put something out there that you know you're optimistic that it's going to be improved in the future and i think that's another thing that holds people back and one thing that i'm afraid of for thoughtbot is we would slide into the expectation that things are the same or that we have it nailed down and there's no way it could be improved or something like that because i think that removes people's optimism and when you remove that optimism people are less likely to contribute Mm. because it's like oh why bother it's just going to be shut down yeah you gave a presentation last week to the company and you had a slide that said there is no thought bot way (laughs) right it was profound 
Yeah. Is that what you were trying to get across with that slide? Partly. I think that there was a growing common misconception externally that because we write so much about how we work, what we do, and we share that with people, when people outside see that snapshot in time, they say, well, like ThoughtBot has it nailed down. This is the process. This is what they do. It's like that minute, that's what we're doing. But we're also the next minute trying to find better ways of working. It's a common misconception externally that like the process is fixed. This is the ThoughtBot mm-hmm. way. And people would often be surprised that when they join, how dynamic things actually are and all the different things we're trying out and the different research we're doing. And it's been a growing concern of mine seeing lots of new people join the company and sort of like looking to the playbook and the other things that we've written and expecting there to be a hard and fast answer there that isn't going to change. And hearing in certain conversations, people say something that I've never said, which is like, that's not the ThoughtBot way. And it's like, we are ThoughtBot. We are literally ThoughtBot. Any way that we do it is the ThoughtBot way. <laughs> it's a, li- a living being <laughs> yeah. through yeah. us. Yeah, exactly. And so I think people are coming from a good perspective, which is like, you don't want to ruin ThoughtBot. We, we're great. We have high standards. You're seen as a protector of, of it. But there's a fine line between that and sort of like doing things just because that's the way they've always been done. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to be careful about that. And so to bring it back to the, like, that's a very ThoughtBot specific concern. But I think that the overall thing that holds a lot of conversations back and a lot of collaboration back is the sense that certain things are off the table or that, that like, this is a given that can't be reevaluated or this is someone else's pet thing that needs to stick around or, you know, that's what happens a a lot of companies, I think. Yeah. And if folks aren't familiar, we at ThoughtBot have an internal handbook, which is in GitHub, and then also have an externally facing playbook, Mm -hmm. which document basically the, the way that we work very detailed. But these are very much living documents that anyone on the team can be suggesting changes to. Yeah. It's a tool for being intentional about the way that you work, not fixing how you work. So when you're intentional about and clear with clarity about like, this is the best way we've found so far, then you can say, okay, I have a different idea. I'm going to try that and then be intentional about whether that new thing that I was trying worked better or not. And then rapidly incorporate the change just like we do in our products with a pull request, with feedback, and with merging it in. And I think that that can get lost when you have such a rich sort of everything being documented kind of culture. And you noted sort of the value in written communication, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. And I definitely feel the ability to sit back, take a breath, think about, you know, what you're trying to say, and maybe even edit it (laughs) instead of live conversation. You know, there's definitely benefits there. And the other big thing about asynchronous collaboration is the ability to be more productive. So you're trying to have less blockers, and the ability to, you know, work on multiple things at once. Is that how you see it? Or are there other 
benefits to asynchronous collaboration? I think those are the major ones. Being able to really think through something, communicate clearly, but also to be able to do it on your own terms is really important, especially in a culture where everyone is remote. When you interrupt someone to do your work, it's like you're saying your work is more important than their work. And so the interruption-driven culture that I think tools like Slack promote is not only reduces productivity, but it's, it's almost like, it's like insulting when you actually like think about what that interruption-driven culture does to the team. Everyone's constantly essentially interrupting each other for their work. Mm-hmm. When the other thing that that person is working on is the same or more important than what you're interrupting them over. And the number of interruptions that happen on a daily basis for just trivial tidbits of information sharing or conversation, in my mind, is not not worth it. There are times where it's like, we need to be both working on the same thing together. And we are both agreeing it's the most important thing. And therefore, we're going to have a call or we're going to have a real-time conversation But outside of that, almost any other instance is you should be thinking, is this actually more important than anything else that they're working Mm -hmm. on? Because I'm about to interrupt them. I think you're also touching on on something that we haven't explicitly called out, which is for all of this to work, you need an underlying sense of trust in people. Mm -hmm. You need to trust that they're working on the most important thing for them to be working on or even that they're working in general, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that that's definitely a dynamic that's happening as people move remotely is folks who are used to being able to watch their team work, maybe struggling with a a little bit of that, that trust element if it Mm -hmm. wasn't there already. And then also trusting that the process works and trusting that people will get back to you because of that process is in place. Yeah. And to be perfectly open and honest, like this is something that was mounting for me as a concern about the way that we were working internally, even before we moved all remote. And if anything, I regret not pushing on it sooner because it's only become more important over the last four weeks or so. And so it's been... Which part was mounting as a concern? the interruption-driven communication that we were having and how much we were having conversations in Slack in a way that was not inclusive to everybody on the team who's focused on other things or very interrupt-driven. And I wish that we had worked to fix it sooner because rapidly pushing through that barrier as we've all moved remote has been more of a disruption than I would have liked it to be. Mm -hmm. So I I think that there's a lesson in there, which is sometimes crisis is good because it's an opportunity and you can like be like, oh, this is this is breaking and therefore we need to fix it. But it's always better if you fix and, and work on fixing a problem that you have before the crisis strikes. Because then you're you're in pure reaction mode as opposed to proactive improvement mode. Mm-hmm. 
But it doesn't really matter because everyone has been forced into <laughs> this new working environment, right? So for teams that weren't at all remotely distributed or weren't working effectively asynchronously before, this is a time where they're being forced to figure it out and do it. And I think that is both very difficult, but also I think a lot of good is going to come from it in the long run. Yeah, it puts uh, definitely a magnifying glass to anything that isn't working or right. not not working as well as it should. Right. And I agree. I think sort of the idea of inclusive communication is definitely one of those areas. And in general, one, I think that maybe companies struggle with more. You can have, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> collaboration, but are you really thinking about how to be inclusive to everyone? And that means all kinds of things, really, mm-hmm. you know, people have different communication styles. We talked about written versus spoken. That's definitely an obvious one. Even the idea of, you know, when they're working during the day can be another one. Yeah, that's the thing for me personally that pushed what I was feeling already over the edge is like I'm at home, our whole family is. <laughs> so yeah. not only am I juggling the normal constraints of what I had. So what was happening before is like a conversation would be actively happening in Slack about something important. And then another one would start. (laughs) Right. And it's like, how do I do it? Just juggling the things among work that were all happening simultaneously and felt very urgent to be a part of because it was going to pass you by if you didn't. And then also now being here, having to like do 30 minutes of math with my with my son like that is really challenging to do. And so when you change the mode from like this is a conversation and everyone who should be a part of it is happening right now to this is a conversation we're going to have and people will contribute as they're able to over the next however long is reasonable. It's so much less stressful for me personally, and I I assume for other people too, but it really was an area which was pretty difficult for me. I know when we engage with client teams, because I often get to talk to them afterwards and ask how their experience was, so many times, most of the time, I would say, most clients say, the you know, one of the things they valued the most about working with us is that we improved their culture and help them communicate and collaborate better. Mm-hmm. When you're jumping into a new client, are there typical things that companies are maybe overseeing in terms of communication and collaboration, like some like go-tos that we uh, check in on immediately? So one really common thing is not having group ownership over the work that you're doing. And this ties back to what I was talking about of like, instead of working, being part of what you're doing, like being in it, you're working on it as a team. This is a similar thing. Mm. On so many product teams, you end up in a scenario where like, so-and-so is responsible for this. And they're the one who knows everything about that. And they're the ones who are gatekeeping everything that gets done on that area and that kind of thing. And then this other person is responsible for this system and you know knows everything about that. And they're in charge of that. And that is not at all how we work or what we want for the teams that we work on. We want shared ownership of the whole system 
people can have their strengths or areas where they're most familiar, but this idea that everyone's working on the system together and we have shared ownership over what we're doing is one of the things we'll most often hit because we're getting onboarded into an existing system or something like that. And so we'll need to be you know, learning new things or figuring out how something works. And as soon as we hear like, oh, talk to this person because they know everything about that. And it's like, well, that is a real point of weakness on a lot of Mm. teams in working as collaboratively and as quickly and efficiently as they would hope to be able to do. Yeah, I imagine that's also, you know, a weakness in terms of your long-term stability and security because those people can walk out the door. Right. Exactly. So it builds resiliency, not only in your day-to-day stuff, but long-term too, definitely. Yeah. So that's a really common one. Any others? It's not uncommon for teams to have a culture where, by default, the voices in the room are dominated by a few, honestly, typically male voices that they don't realize that they're doing it, (laughs) but is Mm -hmm. really not inclusive and constructive to conversation. So it'll be really common for, I'll just use the example that I think a lot of people are familiar with, like the leader of Linux often would like berate people's ideas or just say that's stupid or that kind of thing. It was a very extreme example of, Mm. he'll view that as like, we're having a debate. It's a lively debate about this idea. And instead, it's just really not at all that for a lot of the people who are involved in that conversation. And so Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for us to start working with a team and to face issues communicating or working with specific people. And either it is unintentional on their part, or it's subtly about like, the power that they hold. Like, I'm in charge of this area. And so I'm talking down to the other people not in this area so that they know my place in Mm -hmm. the organization or in the system. And so it's related to my first point about like shared ownership, but it goes beyond that in terms of just the way people talk to each other and the way that ideas are discussed and debated and vetted in a lot of organizations is often very sort of like not actually collaborative and in some places can be actually really toxic. Yeah. And I mean, even on the well-meaning side, you know, someone who's just genuinely excited and has a lot of ideas, but if you're taking up all of the the airtime and not giving other voices in the room an opportunity to speak, that's also not inclusive and unproductive. And that goes as far as needing to specifically call people out. So-and-so, you you know, you haven't gotten a chance to say anything. Do you have anything to add? Or even providing that, making sure you do have that sort of second opportunity to contribute in a, in a written format after the in-person meeting, which may have been high energy and in mm-hmm. not maybe not your favorite way to jump in and contribute. Well, and I, I don't want to make it sound like we've encountered a bunch of assholes at all of our clients. <laughs> in the most common cases, people don't realize that they're working that way mm-hmm. because it's just sort of ingrained in either the culture of the organization or of tech in general. And 
there's some really sort of effective strategies for bringing it to their attention. And almost universally, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Or, you know, you're right. Or that kind of thing. So the big thing is making sure that they don't get defensive about it by not saying they did it intentionally or implying that they do it intentionally. So it's sort of like you can say things like, you know, when you said this, people could take it this way. Did you mean that way? And it's less likely to become immediately defensive. And it's a much more constructive conversation. And they often will thank you for pointing it out and want to do better in the future than get defensive about it. Yeah. Speaking as someone who considers themselves a non-asshole who has uh, probably done this in the past uh, before I was aware, you know, of more inclusive meeting practices, you know, in my younger years, I am positive that I did this, just got super excited, wanted to spit out a million ideas before the hour was over and not really thinking about, you know, did everyone get a chance to contribute? Yeah. All right. So in the following episodes, we're going to check back in with our founders and hear how things are going in general, but also talk to them about communication and collaboration and how are their teams doing working remote? Yeah. And I'm hoping to hear not only some info about how they're doing today, but I'm sure that our founders have lessons learned and everything. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can get from them some personal stories about maybe times where they didn't communicate so well mm. and learned. You know, that's one thing that I've learned a lot in a leadership position is not from the times where like everything went perfectly, <laughs> but the times where like in retrospect, it was like that did not go well. Uh, that idea right. that I wanted to communicate or that meeting or I totally overreacted or whatever. And maybe, maybe we can get some good stories about lessons learned from our founders. Yeah, I can't wait. If you have any questions for them, the thing to do there is email us at host at giantrobots.fm or tweet at us at ThoughtBot. Yeah, totally tweet at us at ThoughtBot. Okay. And I actually just thought of this. We actually hosted a live Q&A about a week ago where we took questions from the community that they had about working remotely. Um, So if you were interested in the conversation today, we have the recording of that up um, and that could be really interesting. There's a lot of great questions around what tools to use, inclusive communication, even like specific questions around like what design tools do you use Mm -hmm. uh, when working remotely? How do you pair program remotely? Things like that. You can check out that recording at tbot.io slash remote. And we'll add that to the show notes. Nice. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. Like I said, you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at cpytel. And you can find me on Twitter at lindsay3d. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.